Well, if you have your Bible, then I would invite you to turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 to 20. Habakkuk chapter 2, I will begin by reading from verse 15. So, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Thus far the reading of God's word. We are in the book of Habakkuk. And we have been studying this book since the beginning of January. But let me try to remind you again of what this book is about. And that is, this book, Habakkuk, addresses the problem of evil. We, re- we remember back in chapter 1, Habakkuk saw evil in the land of Judah. And he was wondering if God was just being apathetic. He didn't do anything about evil. And so God responded to him by saying, No, I will judge the nation of Judah. And I will do so by sending a wicked nation called the Babylonians to judge the evil in Judah. And then Habakkuk then wondered, okay, I understand what you're trying to do, God, but, but these nations, this Babylonian nation is a wicked nation, more, much more worse, much worse than the land of Judah. And so Habakkuk then wondered if God would ever punish evil like Babylon. And last week, we have learned that God responded to Habakkuk by telling him to write this vision on tablets back in chapter 2, verse 2. And this vision written from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20, reveals to us the taunt song whereby the people who was once oppressed by Babylon would then taunt this nation, would then taunt Babylon. And this song consists of five woes, a series of five woes that are pronounced against Babylon and others that are guilty of these woes. So let me try to review the three woes that we have learned from chapter 2, verses 6 to 14. We have learned that Babylon was guilty of extortion and greediness, found in verses 6 to 8. We we have also learned that Babylon was guilty of unjust economic gain, found in verses 9 to 11, and that Babylon was guilty of human exploitation found in verses 12 to 14 and because Babylon was guilty of wickedness in the destruction of other nations they would receive an impending uh, judgment 
And so before we go into the text, I need to give you a discretion, especially for those of you who are parents. Uh, as we have just read in this passage, specifically in verses 15 to 17, there will be some languages that may not be suitable for children who are in elementary school. And so if you have children tuning into this service with you, then I'm totally fine if you want them to do something else. Uh, but you have been advised, and as they say in movie theaters or TV shows, viewer's discretion, has, or viewer's discretion is advised. So with your Bible, please follow along as I go through the last two woes found in verses 15 to 20. Now the fourth woe, the fourth woe is in the fourth stanza in verses 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. See, the problem that we see here is that Babylon was guilty of public shaming and disgrace of other nations. They were guilty of public shaming and disgrace of other nations. You see, in verse 15, we will learn that Babylon had a very hedonistic lifestyle. It was a nation that enjoyed its booze excessively. It was a nation that was so absorbed with pleasures, worldly pleasures. They were known for drinking parties. And their sin involved the, involved the use of liquor. And they used it for the purpose of intoxicating and manipulating uh, others into debauchery and wild orgies. You see, what is clear in this passage is that Babylon was giving drinks to their neighbors. However, in the middle of verse 15, the text says, you pour out your wrath and make them drunk. See, the word wrath here could also be translated as poison or venom. In the New American Standard Bible, it would be rendered this way. Who mix in your venom even to make them drunk? And so most of the time, this word is translated as wrath 88 times out of 124 times. But sometimes this word is attached in the context of the venom of the serpent. And so perhaps God intentionally used this word to include a variety of meanings uh, to, what that, to, the, to what the Babylonians have done to other nations. It displays Babylon's ruthless practice upon their neighbors to other nations. Babylon forced other nations to drink its cup of wrath and venom and be intoxicated and be drunk. And once they are intoxicated and drunk, we are given a rather uncomfortable imagery here. Babylon's purpose of making them drunk was to gaze upon their nakedness. Now, the Bible often uses strong languages that may sound offensive and graphic to our cultural sensibilities. See, the word nakedness literally means the sexual organ of a human being. Now, I don't know how you will react to this, but I find this to be utterly inappropriate. However, this word nakedness also has a symbolic meaning. 
It is meant to display or it is meant to symbolize shame. It is meant to symbolize shame. The Babylonians, uh, the Babylonians expose others' nakedness for, a purpose, for the purpose of publicly shaming them and putting them into disgrace. However, here's the taunt against Babylon found in verse 16. Babylon thought it was getting glory for making others drunk and seeing their nakedness. But instead of getting glory, they get shame and disgrace. That's the taunt here. It is their turn to be disgraced and be put to shame. The text tells us that God will reverse Babylon's fortunes. And as we have learned thus far from the woes, whatever Babylon has done to other nations, others will do the same to this nation. And having made other nations drunk and shamed them, Babylon would drink their own medicine and publicly shame themselves. You see, the language here is also pretty strong. God is giving Babylon an imperative here, an imperative or a commandment. They are to drink and they are to show their uncircumcision. See, the word circumcision means the cutting of, the practice of cutting away the foreskin of male children, usually within a short time of birth. Uh, Circumcision was introduced back in Genesis chapter 17, and it was significant in God's covenant with Abraham. And in the Old Testament, the practice practice is, is seen as a sign of membership of the people of God. Therefore, every Israelite male infant has to be circumcised when he is eight days old. And so when God, when God tells Babylon to show their uncircumcision, you can imagine just how graphic this is and how graphic this image is. And I know that this language is unseen or inappropriate for, for us and our culture. However, it is, meant, it is meant to shame and to expose Babylon's nakedness for exposing others by encouraging others in drunkenness and debauchery. And I think it is meant to paint a horrendous and disgusting portrait of sin. And one of the nations we are told that Babylon had, to, had put to shame was Lebanon in verse 17. See, Lebanon was, and even still to this day, a, a nation north of Israel. It is known for its abundance of cedar trees and wild animals. Lebanon was a major source of wood for temples and ships. Now, why did God specifically mention Lebanon here? I think perhaps Lebanon was only mentioned as an example of how Babylon took advantage of Lebanon's resources for building materials and then tried to destroy this nation for its own greediness. They carelessly and neglectfully used up Lebanon's resources and land. The violence done to them was by destroying the forests and also depriving the animals of habitat. And afterward, Babylon trashed them like they were nothing. This may anger a lot of environmentalists and even animal lovers. But by God's grace, until this day, Lebanon is still a country, and their flag represents, I think, a cedar tree. But God will tell us here in this passage that God will judge Babylon and he will make Babylon drink the cup of the Lord's right hand. At the end of verse 16, what is this talking about here? 
See, the cup of the Lord's right hand symbolizes God's wrath. The wrath of God, according to Jeremiah 15 and Jeremiah chapter 25. Because Babylon put others to shame by making them drink the cup of their cup, God pours out his wrath upon Babylon by making them drink the cup of the Lord, to drink God's wrath, and then putting them to shame and not giving them any glory at all. That is the fourth woe. Babylon was guilty of public shaming and disgrace of other nations. And this is the part where you can now invite your children back. In the fifth woe is found in the final stanza in verses 18 to 20. Here's what it says. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, the obviously, I think the obvious problem found here is that Babylon was guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of idolatry here. When you compare this woe to the others, this one is a little bit different here. First, this time, it sort of has nothing to do with other nations. It has nothing to do with what Babylon has done to other nations here. It is about Babylon's own sin and its own corruption and wickedness. Second, it doesn't begin in verse 18. It doesn't begin with woe to him. Rather, it is located in the middle of the stanza. Why is that? Well, I think, I think it's probably because God wanted to jump right into idol worship here giving the readers a sense of urgency and conveying his indignation at the abomination of worshiping idols, worshiping lies. And we notice that God begins with a penetrating and a rhetorical question. What prophet is an idol? Now, what is, what is idolatry? It is the worship and adoration of anyone or anything other than the Lord God himself. This includes worshiping other gods or statues or religions, worshiping other material items or material things, worshiping people, worshiping yourself. Although in Canadian culture, I think most people don't necessarily worship statues per se, but idols are things that we place our faith, our worship, and our trust other than the living God most prevalent in our culture may be the worship of self, the worship of money, the worship of materialism, the worship of entertainment, the worship of fame and success. But what did Babylon worship? What did Babylon specifically worship? Well, Babylon was a land full of idolatry, full of false gods, full of statues. And we have learned from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 11, that the Babylonians worshipped their own strength and their own might. But there were idols that they have made out of wood, silver, and gold. It was, the sort, was this sort of idol that King Nebuchadnezzar made in Daniel chapter 3. 
And it was this idol that three Jewish young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, resisted to bow down, even at the risk of their own lives. So why does an idol have no profit? You see, we live in a very pluralistic society where we can believe in anything and whatever we want. This is a free country. You have human rights. You can believe whatever you want, a religion or whichever religion you want to follow. But I will say, or God will say here in this passage, that there is no profit in worshiping idols. See, in this woe, Habakkuk gives us four problems with idolatry. First, idol is only something made by human beings. Second, idols teach nothing but lies. Third, making an idol means that the worshipers have made, have made gods in their own image. An idol cannot speak or give guidance. So let's go through this. First, an idol is only something made by human beings. See, idols aren't like our Lord. They, never, they have never existed for all of eternity. They have a beginning and an end. These false gods, these false idols were created and worshipped by their own creator, by their own maker, found in verse 18, where it says, for its maker trusts in his own creation. You see, the reality is, back in Genesis, creation was created and made by God, but they were not worshipped by our God. God did not create this world to bow down to its creation. God did not create us to bow down to us. This is a clear antithesis between the idols and our God. Second, idols teach nothing but lies. And even if they do teach truth, maybe it's half-truth. Behind every idol in the world is something demonic and satanic. And although the, although the idols are empty and lifeless, demons impersonate them. Paul says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Demons would teach nothing but falsehood and lies so as to deceive people from knowing the true God who created them. Third, making an idol means that the worshippers have made gods in their own image. Greg Beale, a theologian from Westminster Theological Seminary, he wrote a book called We Become What We Worship. And in this book, he traces the storyline of the Bible and what it says about idolatry here. And he says, and I quote, People will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or some feature of the world. If people are committed to God, they will become like Him. If they are committed to something other than God, they will become like that thing. Always spiritually inanimate, and empty like the lifeless and vain aspect of creation to which they have committed themselves, end quote. See, the heart of idolatry, I think, is the worship and reflection of self. P 
people create and formulate idols that they want to praise because they think that these idols would please and satisfy them. God says through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, okay, don't have that slow. don't have Romans chapter 1 here, but Romans chapter 1 verse, verses 20 to 23 says this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. You know, that's why God says in his, to his people in the Ten Commandments that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Lastly, the fourth one, an idol cannot speak or give guidance. That is a statue's. See, in the final word, the final word in verse 18 here, it says speechless idols. And in the Hebrew, the word idol here means non-entity or nobody. This is fitting, as idols were nothing. They were nothing. God says that these idols have no breath in them. At the end of verse 19, they are lifeless. And in the Hebrew, the word for breath here is translated as ruach. Ruach. And it can be translated as breath, life, and spirit, or in reference to the Holy Spirit. See, there was this word ruach stood for power and life. And this word was used back in the book of Genesis, whereby God breathed life, breathed ruach into Adam. But idols have no breath in them. There's no life in them. Idols have no power to save. Idols have no ability to give guidance. Idols will never answer, respond, or pay attention. They cannot hear, hear, speak, guide, or save. So what profit is there in trusting an idol? Nothing. Greg Beale makes this strong point that idols are empty and nobodies. He says, and I quote, People may resort to empty idols, for security, but such idols will vanish and be cast away to the trash because they are worthless and cannot provide any security at all except false security. We may commit ourselves to some earthly idols for fulfillment, but there will be none since such idols are truly empty and have no spiritual reality except a demonic one. See, what Greg Beale says here really reflects the teaching found in Psalm chapter 115, verses 4 to 8, which says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them 
become like them. So do all who trust in them. Let me emphasize verse 8 again. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Therefore, what idol worshippers thought could save them, teach them, hear them, and guide them would become futile. If you worship and trust idols, you will become like them. Empty, spiritually void, dead, and nothing. As as Greg Beale correctly titled his book, You Become What You Worship. That is the fall of Babylon here. That is the punishment and condemnation on Babylon and all who worship idols. God gives them over to their own sinful nature. And in the end, their worship of idols will backfire on them, leaving them hopeless and lifeless. And ultimately, after this life, these idols cannot save them from their sins and the wrath to come. This is the vanity and futility of the worship of idols. Nothing can save people from their sins and have their sins forgiven except by trusting and placing their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. And there is, no salva- and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus can, can save you. And finally, let's look at verse 20. Now, this is the verse we, we sang this morning for our worship service. But some have also said that this verse was sung as a way to subdue the congregation to a, a quiet contemplation, reflection, or meditation of the sermon. See, while I think it could be fitting to sing this verse in the church service, what matters is the context that surrounds this text. See, this verse is meant to draw a huge contrast to the previous verse regarding idol worship. See, idols, as we have learned, they have no ability to hear or to respond. However, our God is in His holy temple. He is on His throne in the heavenly realm. Our God is not dead. He is surely alive. He is ready to hear, respond, to teach, and to speak to you. In addition, I also think this verse could be a fitting conclusion of the series of five woes that we have learned and studied. What we have learned regarding how God plans to deal and punish evil. This is a contrast to what we have learned and studied in the beginning of this, this short book. Because, God, no, because Habakkuk complained to, that God seemed to be silent and apathetic in the face of evil. However, now that Habakkuk has already heard from God, he must hush and be silent and let God be God. Habakkuk was to be in humble silence and also including everybody in in the face of the whole earth. He was to be silent as he waits for God to fulfill his divine purpose in judging the nation of Babylon and also evil. And when he does punish evil, we are to be silent and to be in worship. Let God act. Let God fulfill his vision in his own timing. That is the fifth woe. 
Babylon was guilty of idolatry. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, made a great and lavish feast for his people. And this feast would also be known as the drinking party. And the center of this celebration was the gold and silver that had been taken from the temple of Jerusalem when Babylon plundered and looted the nation of Judah at, at about 586 BC. So about 20 years after Habakkuk wrote this book. And afterwards, God wrote a message on the wall for Belshazzar, which was not understandable for the Babylonians. Therefore, Daniel, an Israelite, helped interpret the writing on the wall, which told Belshazzar that his kingdom shall fall and be brought to an end. And Scripture tells us that the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire, fell into the hands of the Persian Empire in 539 B.C. Nonetheless, the fall of Babylon does not mean that evil has completely and totally fallen. Babylon was a representation of all nations and empires that have trusted in themselves and in their own evil ways rather than God. And as echoed through the corridor of world history, evil empires have risen and have fallen. Some empires have been reduced to ashes, while some empires have been reduced, or no longer empires, but they have been reduced to a smaller scale, they've been reduced to a spectacle. I think of the Mongol Empire that conquered most of Asia, but now it's just a little small little country. The Persian Empire would then fall to the hand of the Greek Empire, and then the Greek Empire would fall to the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was then divided into two empires, the Western Empire, which was known as the Western Roman Empire, and the Eastern Empire, known as the Byzantine Empire. And we also know from history that the Western Roman Empire fell to the barbarians in 395 AD, and the Byzantine Empire would then later on fell, fall in 1453 AD by the Turks. But my point here is this is that no empire lasts forever. No evil empire lasts forever. But there is a righteous kingdom that will last forever. See, before he died, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, recognized the truth of God's kingdom and dominion after he was humbled and humiliated by God. We are told in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the, the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Although empires will fall, which did for the, Rome, for the Babylonian empire, there is still hope and mercy and grace 
for sinners like Nebuchadnezzar to actually at least recognize the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there are none so evil or so destitute that the grace of God cannot even reach them. Let me wind things down as I conclude the message and have us prepare for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Does God's response for how he will deal with evil answer all of our questions? I think God has responded. He has given us some answers, but not necessarily all of them. One particular mystery that God leaves us to exercise faith is the when. We don't necessarily know when he will punish evil. However, God did say in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. See, God did respond. He has responded to us in the book of Habakkuk, this small yet profound little book. And that should be sufficient for us. That should be enough for us. You may not like the way God responded. You may want to know everything. You may, know the, you may know, want to know the when. But God doesn't give us that answer of when. However, even though we, you may not like it, if that's you this morning, then I hope you can still respond in worship. You can still respond in worship by trust Though I don't like God, I don't like the way you are doing things, help me to trust you. Help me to know that your ways are always good. Help me to know that I'm not the wisest one here, but that you are infinitely wise. And as God's people, we live by faith. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, we live by faith, trusting that our God works out all things for good to those who love him. And we do need to be patient, and we do need to wait and hope that God will respond to evil in our own time, during, when, while we're still alive. But we also know that he will respond to, to us in his own timing. And so we are to worship him. And if he doesn't respond to evil, if we don't see evil being punished in our own time, then we know, we know, how exact, we know exactly how evil will ultimately fall in the end as revealed to us in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ will ultimately be victorious over evil, and his people will celebrate this victory for all of eternity in the new heaven and in the new earth, where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, and no more evil. That is our hope as believers. Let's pray. Father God, I pray now, as we have pondered and considered the wisdom that you have given to us for how you will deal with evil, help us to trust you. As cliche, although it may sound cliche to just say trust in the Lord, but Lord, it is really what we need to do to trust in you, to wait upon you, to study your word and to gaze upon the beauty of Christ and to know that God, you have spoken to us, you have responded to us. And for those who have for those who, have, who are listening, who have wrestled with this issue of the problem of evil, that you will give them much hope 
and comfort and peace. Though it's a, it's a difficult time even at this moment. And there are those in our, in our church family, there may be those in our church family who are facing evil, whatever context that may be. So God, comfort them. Help them to wait upon you. Help them to trust you and to worship you. And when the day you do, God, punish evil in our time, oh Lord, may we be silent and just be in, be in awe of what God you're doing. And we also pray uh, for, the, for our world, for our nations, for our government, for everybody, people who may be in, walking in evil ways, that God, please, like Nebuchadnezzar, who have at least recognized and acknowledged who you are, that they would know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they recognize their own wicked and evil ways, that they indeed dare to repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. So, Lord, please do your supernatural work in their hearts. And so, God, as we come to this time for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, may we meditate and reflect and even be silent. Be silent to be in awe of what Christ has done for us. So I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.